Morning, everyone. I don't know uh, how many of you uh, noticed, uh, but this morning we are beginning a new sermon series, and the uh, sermon series is titled Misfits of the Bible. And I don't know what goes through your mind when you hear the word misfits, but most likely it's not positive. It's probably a negative label that you don't wake up every morning and go, boy, I hope I can live today in such a way that someone would call me a misfit. I was told many times, especially in my younger grades, by teachers to stop being a misfit. And so again, not necessarily a positive term. And so you may be reading the bulletin, I guess that's an old way of saying it, the email update and seeing that we're beginning this series, Misfits of the Bible, and wondering what in the world do we mean by misfits and why would we want to study it right through till the end of this year. Uh, Now, I must admit there was a time in my life where I did choose to be a misfit. Uh, I'd moved to Ajax. I bought my first house. I was single and I loved playing baseball. And I called the men's league in Ajax to see if there was a space available on a team. Uh, And I was told that every team in the league has come as a team. So there's no space available. But there's one team that's been put together. And it's just random people like me who are looking to play on a ball team and didn't have anyone else to play with. And so they were encouraging all these random people to get together to become a baseball team. Now, this had happened the year before I had joined. So I got the opportunity to join these guys. And interestingly enough, and I think it was just recently that Allison finally made me throw out this particular baseball jersey, uh, we were the Misfits. And that was the name of our baseball team because they couldn't think of anything else to call themselves other than they were just a bunch of misfits who got together on a team. And we ended up being a really good uh, ball team over the years uh, that I played with them. So that was one kind of positive example of the word misfits. But usually it's something that uh, we may see as negative. And if you were to go to the dictionary... uh, It probably makes a whole lot of sense. I wrote down a couple of the definitions. Uh, Webster's, uh, first of all, misfits, something that fits badly. Uh, But the other definition, it's a person who is poorly adapted to a situation or environment. Uh, Cambridge Dictionary says, a misfit is someone who is not suited to a situation or who is not accepted by other people because their behavior is strange or unusual. Uh, And then if you were to look at a list of synonyms to the word misfit, you would understand why we may have negative thoughts about the the, uh, label or the tag being a misfit. And some of those synonyms are flake, oddball, fish out of water, and if you saw the uh, update uh, email ad for this uh, series, a square peg in a round hole. And so again, the question's got to be asked, what are we talking about when we're talking about misfits in the Bible, and why would we devote a whole series to them? And so here's what we want to accomplish through this series. I want us, well, we want us to see how 
black sheep, rebels, those who are ostracized, those who are ordinary, those who are seemingly unqualified, those who would have been seen with very low expectations. How those very individuals in Scripture were used by God to change the world. Misfits that God didn't exclude, but rather encountered them, radically changed their lives, and then in turn used them to change other people's lives. That's what we're talking about when we say misfits in the Bible. I was driving my daughter Lauren's fiance, John, to work this week, uh, and uh, they're away this weekend, and he said, well, what are you going to be? I told him, boy, you're going to miss a real poor speaker. And uh, he figured I was talking about myself. And uh, he said, well, what are you speaking on? And so I gave him the blurb that I just gave you, that, uh, that we want to, this is what we want to accomplish. We want to see how the you know, the, the black sheep, the ostracized, the ordinary, the unexpected, the, the seemingly unqualified, how those people were used by God to change the world. And he said, Brent, he says, putting it that way, you could take a dart and throw it at Scripture, and pretty well on any page that dart lands, you would hit a misfit. I said, that's so true. From the earliest pages of the Old Testament through the Christmas narrative, uh, all the way to the the, uh, end of the New Testament, there are misfits, as I've described them, used by God to change the world, to build his kingdom, to reach people for Christ, to impact the world. Uh, and, And over the next number of weeks, you're going to hear us talk about different individuals. And some of them are going to be ones that we really know very little about but who rose to the occasion to accomplish what God had called them to do, and then they kind of just faded again into the background. We're going to talk about some individuals who would be the last people we would have ever expected or chosen to be used by God. We're going to be talking about some of the Christmas narrative characters, real misfits that God used to bring about the birth of his son into this world. And we're going to talk about others that are regular household names. In fact, we call our children by some of these names. And think of the 12 disciples. John MacArthur, and this is a fantastic book if you want a a good read. Uh, It's called 12 Ordinary Men. And uh, in the introduction, let me just read a couple of things that MacArthur says. I've always been fascinated with the lives of the 12 disciples. Who isn't? The personality types of these men are familiar to us. They're just like us, and they're like other people we know. They are approachable. They are real and living characters we can identify with. Their faults and foibles, as well as their triumphs and endearing features, are chronicled in some of the most fascinating accounts of the Bible. These are the men we want to know. That's because they were perfectly ordinary men in every way. Not one of them was renowned for scholarship or great erudition. They had no track record as orators or theologians. In fact, they were outsiders as far as the religious establishment of Jesus' day was concerned. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. 
Yet with all their faults and character flaws, as remarkably ordinary as they were, these men carried on a ministry after Jesus' ascension that left an indelible impact on the world. Their ministry continues to influence us even today. God graciously empowered and used these men to inaugurate the spread of the gospel message and to turn the world upside down. Ordinary men, people like you and me, became the instruments by which Christ's message was carried to the ends of the earth. No wonder they are such fascinating characters. And, and, and I'm certain over the next couple, uh, number of uh, weeks of this series, you're probably going to hear uh, about one or two uh, of these ordinary men who became disciples and who are used uh, by God to change the world, or as MacArthur says, to turn the world uh, upside down. And so it's true, you can take a dart and throw it at Scripture, and pretty well any page it lands, you're going to find a misfit. But you know, there's one thing I would add to that. Now, I, I didn't, no, I forgot my darts at home. Uh, but I would say that I could take a dart and throw it in this room. And my guess is pretty well anywhere that dart lands. If you're a follower of Jesus, you in one way or another are a misfit. You're a misfit in God's kingdom. You have come to God, some of you with great baggage. Some of you would describe your past before coming to Christ as a rebel. Some of you are in ministry and you know what it's like to feel ostracized, to to feel alone, to face ridicule. Uh, There's some of you here and the dart would hit you and you go, yeah, I'm, I'm the ordinary one. I can't imagine that God is going to turn the world upside down through someone as ordinary as me. Some of you would see yourself as, as, as very unqualified. Not a whole lot of abilities or skills that God could do anything great with. Some of you would fall into the category of the unexpected. You're not expecting God to do anything through you. And so I could throw that dart and it would land on you and you and myself. And hopefully you're going to see that we are a misfit just like the misfits that we find in the Bible. And that God wants to use us to be part of his program, to partner with him, to build his kingdom, and to see this world changed one person at a time for the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for his kingdom. And so we're going to look at different individuals. And and this morning we're going to begin by looking at Moses, way back in Exodus. And uh, we're going to see how Moses is called by God to do something great. But Moses isn't quite sure that he should be the one receiving the call. And he's going to make up a whole lot of excuses why he shouldn't be used. Excuses, I have a feeling that we are going to recognize. And hopefully we're going to be encouraged like Moses was encouraged by God's response uh, to those excuses. So if you've got your Bible, turn uh, to the book of Exodus. So it's the second book uh, in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And uh, we're mainly going to be focusing on chapter 3 and chapter 4. So Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. Before we get into Exodus, let me just ask a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation 
where you question your ability or your usefulness to carry out a task or a challenge that's been placed before you. A couple of weeks ago, Brian Miller uh, was speaking on service, and it was a great message. I encourage you to listen to it if you didn't hear it, and maybe I encourage you to re- listen to it again even if you did hear it. Uh, it. It is a wonderful message for us to springboard off of into this series. Uh, because we're going to deal with a lot of the things that Brian uh, was talking about. And in his message, if you remember, he had a knee. Uh, Hopefully it was fake, but he had a knee uh, up here with him. And he was explaining the complexity of the human body and specifically zooming in on the knee and how it works and how the parts work together. And and he talked about how there's other organs in our body that support uh, the other organs in the body and how everything works together. And, And it's interesting. We weren't here for that Sunday. Uh, Allison and I were visiting her mom uh, and her mom's husband in Campbell River, BC. And Campbell River, BC is a beautiful place, especially if you like the outdoors, if you're into mountain biking, hiking, mountain climbing, doing all the things in the, in, in the water. It's a beautiful, lovely place. But I'm listening to Brian describe this knee and how it works and what happens if it doesn't work. And I couldn't help but think, here Allison and I were with her mom and her mom's husband, Esther and Richard, who are in their 80s and both have wonky knees. Uh, Richard needs to have his knees replaced. He just doesn't want to do it. Uh, And Allison's mom has had her knees replaced, but they're causing her all sorts of issues. And so we went to all these different places that are fantastic outdoor places to be, but so often they would stay in the truck or they would walk and sit on a bench and say to Allison and I, okay, here's where you want to hike, but we're just going to sit here because we're not able to do it. Uh, we're going to just sit on the sideline and you're going to do all these things uh, that we can't do uh, anymore because, because they knew that they didn't have the ability, that they wouldn't be useful guiding us through some of these trails that Allison and I went on by ourselves. Uh, so it's just interesting is that that's what Brian was talking about and, and here we were with uh, people with uh, bad knees. Uh, I can think of my own personal examples, many of them actually, of situations where I have been faced with a a task uh, or something that I needed to accomplish that I questioned my ability or or my usefulness. Uh, I remember years ago being asked if I would head up the sales and marketing division of a company out on the West Coast, which sales and marketing is what I've done my whole life. So that wasn't really out of my comfort zone, but this company sold high-end mountain bikes and downhill racers, which I knew absolutely nothing about. I would have to go to trade shows uh, and promote these bikes. I do not look like the poster boy for a mountain bike or a downhill racer. Again, I knew nothing about it. It was a whole different culture out on the West Coast. Uh, And I was uh, given the task of trying to get these bikes into stores like Costco and Sam's World and, and, and things like that, which I'd never had. I, I was used to selling to printers. I had no experience doing things like that. And so I, I, I was very fearful that I would be able to uh, accomplish this task that was put before me. And I'm sure I could go on. And, and you're probably thinking of tasks or challenges that you've been given in your own life where you've questioned whether you could be useful, whether you could do it, uh, whether you'd be effective. But imagine what it must be like being used by God, given a task or something to accomplish for God. 
why would God want to use us anyways? What can we do that's going to help God promote what he wants to accomplish? What do we have to offer that God doesn't already have? Those are questions I've asked lots of times through my Christian life. And my guess is there's a bunch of you that have asked those questions and you can relate to those questions. And the reason I know that is because that's the reason so many of us so often say no when there's a need. When volunteers are being looked for, we question our ability. We don't think we'll be effective. And so we say, no, that's my answer. And if there's anyone in scripture that understands those questions, it was Moses. 80 years old, the last 40 of his years tending sheep, And all of a sudden, he's confronted by God, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, uh, in a burning bush. And God tells Moses, Moses, I got a special mission for you. You're going to lead my people out of captivity in Egypt into freedom. And as we're going to see, Moses listens to what God has to say and goes, yeah, no, not me. But we're also going to see is that despite all the excuses that Moses made, excuses that strangely sound so familiar, because I think I've used every one of these excuses, and probably most of you have used some of these excuses, God wasn't going to have it. And every excuse was met with God's response. And my goal this morning is to, and my prayer is that you We'll see yourself in Moses' story, but you will feel the encouragement that Moses would have felt as God responded to every one of these uh, excuses. And so now let's go into Exodus. And Exodus uh, is a, a record of Israel's independence from uh, its oppressor, Egypt, out of slavery into freedom. Uh, verse 1 begins with a short account of how the Israelites found themselves in Egypt in slavery. But very quickly, it turns to the story of Moses, his birth and his, his life. And uh, a lot of the first stories in chapter 1 and 2 are stories that you'll remember from way back in Sunday school, uh, where he's, he's uh, put into a basket and floated in a river because if he was found to be a child of an Israelite, he would have been put to death. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him and rescues him and brings him into Pharaoh's household. And, and he's raised in Pharaoh's household. And then we read of how there's two Israelites, uh, sorry, an Egyptian was beating up on, an, uh, on, a, on one of the Israelite slaves and, and he kills the Egyptian. Uh, and then the next day there's two Israelites fighting and he tries to break up the fight Uh, And the Israelites looked at him and said, who are you? Who do you think you are? We don't need you to rule over us. What are you going to do? Kill one of us like you killed one of the Egyptians? And and so uh, news of this reaches Pharaoh and then Pharaoh puts the the death notice on Moses. And so Moses flees and goes to Midian and and he becomes a shepherd. And for 40 years, uh, he's a shepherd. Uh, And then at Mount Horeb, he sees a burning bush. And now the story begins again for where we're going to pick, off, pick up here this morning. Uh, and he hears the word of God to him, calling him 
to this great mission. And, and that's where we're going to pick it up. That's where the story begins for us at the burning bush. But it's also where Moses' excuses begin. And so we've, we read that uh, God says, I've heard the cry of the Israelites, my people, and, and I'm going to free them and I'm going to send you, Moses, and I need you to go and you are going to rescue my people and you're going to bring them out of captivity. And so if you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 10, I'm going to keep going back to verse 10 or I'm going to mean to go back to verse 10 often. Here's what God says, Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. And verse 11, we come to the first excuse. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I? I'm not the right person. I'm not up to the task. I'm not qualified. Excuse number one, who am I? And I can just imagine what must be going through Moses' head. He's 80 years old. Like, God, why now? Why didn't you call me when I was 40, when I was younger, before I made that horrible mistake and killed the Egyptian? The Hebrews don't even like me. They put a price tag on my life. I had to flee. It will be really awkward going back to Egypt. I don't think people want to see me in Egypt. I'm not sure if the price tag might be still on my life. Maybe things have totally changed. Now, who am I going to be if things have totally changed? Maybe they don't even know who I am. And, and Moses is totally overwhelmed with all of these thoughts. And he says, no. I can't go. I'm the wrong person for you, God. Who am I that you would send me? I think many of us recognize that excuse. Who am I that you would want to use me to do that? I could list all the different things that I've heard over here at Auburn for the last 15 years where we need volunteers and help and, and things outside of the church where we need people to do things. Who am I to do th those kind of things? And I guess it, it would kind of make sense. I mean, like, God, you should have chosen Moses 40 years ago. Younger, more energy, not as bad of a reputation, but instead, God leaves Moses for 40 years in the desert, like this desert training camp, before he says, no, now it's time. I think there's a lesson in that. I think God wanted to show Moses and wants to show us that he's looking for people who he can use who are fully dependent on him, not on their own abilities. And... and He's looking for those who aren't interested in being celebrities, but are willing to be servants. And so God says, Moses, go. And Moses says, well, who am I? I'm not the right person. And then look in verse 12 at God's response. I would think God's response 
if I had to guess without reading verse 12, and I said to read, look at verse 12, so you've probably already read it, but, but if I was going to guess how the story should go, it should be God saying, Moses, you know what your problem is? You've got low self-esteem. You don't really get how talented you are and the abilities that you have. You are a gifted individual. Don't sell yourself short. That's not what God says. Moses says, I'm the wrong person. And here's what God says. I'll be with you. God promises Moses his presence. He says, Moses, I know what I'm doing. I know what's going on in Egypt right now. I know what's going to go on in the wilderness years later. And regardless of how things turn out, regardless of how events carry themselves out, I will be with you. You will serve me in my presence. And that was something that was very, very important to Moses. If you work your way through Exodus, you come to Exodus 33, you see that Moses understood that. Moses says to God, God, if your presence doesn't go forward, we don't want to move. We want to stay in your presence. And so Moses says, I'm the wrong person. And God says, don't worry. I will be with you. And that's our encouragement. God is never going to ask us to be involved and then abandon us. His presence will be with us. And so you would think, okay, with that promise, Moses going, okay, show me where I'm going, Lord. But no, we move into another excuse in verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Excuse number two. I don't know enough. I don't know enough about you, God. What if someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer? For me, that has probably paralyzed me more in service for God. It been my excuse to say no than any of the excuses that we're going to look at. At university, I was part of the University Christian Fellowship Group, and we had a book table uh, that we would set up in the hallways of the University of Toronto. And the whole idea, we were really could care less whether we sold a book. We probably gave away more books and Bibles than we sold. The idea was to have conversation, that people would come and talk to us. I was well within my comfort zone selling a book. But I sat at that book table fearful every time that someone, maybe a philosophy student, was going to come by and ask me a question and I wouldn't know the answer. And so as people would come and there would be multiple of us uh, sitting behind the table, there was times that I would just kind of duck away from a conversation because I was fearful I wouldn't know the answer. 
And I think that's why some of us don't volunteer to get involved uh, in youth or to head up a Bible study or to lead a group within women's, Women in the Word. Al mentioned several times to us that one of his dreams is to set up a table. Maybe you've already done this, Al, but set up a table, probably in warmer weather, right by the trail and to hand out water bottles to people as they're walking by. Why? To give out water? Yeah, that's a nice thing to do. But probably with the hope that we can strike up some conversation and get to know people. And I listen to that idea and I go, man, it's a fantastic idea. But there's a part of me that goes, but what if I'm sitting there and I strike, strike, strike up a conversation with someone and they ask me a question and I don't know the answer? That's fearful to me. Moses had the same fear, which makes me kind of feel a little bit better about myself. And it was particularly about his knowledge of who God was. He says to God, what if the Israelites, when I go to talk to them, say, well, who is it that sent you? What is his name? And Moses says, God, look, what am I supposed to tell them? And God's response is, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of confusing, actually, at first. Moses says, suppose I go to them, I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thank you. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And what's really confusing is because we hear the question that Moses asked God and we are expecting an answer like, well, tell them that Bob sent you. Or, or Bill sent you. But God says, tell them that I am, or literally, I am who I am, sent you. Which is, sounds really confusing, right? But God wasn't really worried about giving a name like Bob or Bill. What he was wanting to do to Moses and, and to us and to those who hear this story was to reveal something of his character. And so what he tells Moses to tell the Israelites, tell them that the God who was and who is and who always will be has sent you. That when we are called to serve God, we are being called and we are serving none other than who the Bible refers to as the great I am. And if you've been brought up in the church and you hear that, you know that the response is supposed to be, yes, amen. And yet, I'm sure there's a bunch of us that really aren't quite sure what that means. So why is that so impressive that the great I am is the one who calls us and who sends us and who wants us to partner with them? And so someone who is much smarter than I has written this explanation so that you can appreciate what it is that God is saying to us and saying to Moses. The great I am is the ultimate statement of the self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence of God. God's existence is not contingent upon anyone else. His plans are not contingent upon any circumstances. He stands ever-present and unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he wills to do and to accomplish what he wills to accomplish. That is the great I am. The all sufficient, all-knowing, almighty God of this universe, that's who's saying to Moses, go. 
The Israelites want to know who sent you. The great I am sent you. And that's what's God, what is God saying to us today. When he calls us and he asks us to be involved in his kingdom program. He wants us to know who it is that's asking you to be involved. You may question your capabilities and your qualities and, and your effectiveness. But you're being called by one who's all sufficient who has all resources at his disposal. And all God asks of us is to trust and to believe that when he calls us, he will give us the words to say. He will give us the answers to those tough questions. He will give us the resources in those situations. So excuse number two, God has a really good answer. Who am I? I don't know enough. Now Moses might be ready to say yes and go back to Egypt to rescue the Israelites. But Moses isn't finished with his excuses yet. Go, but go down to verse 16. And this one's a little bit longer uh, of a text to, to pull this excuse out. But, but let me read it. It's, I think kind of it's, 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 it's funny in a way. Verse 16. Here's the plan, Moses. And Dale and I were laughing about this at the beginning. Like, look, this is taking place in a burning bush. I know we all experience the burning bushes every day, but we read the story and say, oh yeah, like Moses had a burning bush. No, this is a burning bush, right? That just keeps burning. And God's talking to Moses from, from out of this bush. And then it gets better. This is, so Moses, mind the flames, but let me tell you my plan. Okay, so go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, so you're going to go back to, Is you're, you're going to assemble these elders uh, in Egypt where the Israelites are slaves and you got a bad rap and you're a fugitive and you're wanted for murder and the Hebrews didn't even like you, but, but go back there anyways and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt and I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And remember, he's going to say this to people who are enslaved, who are oppressed. Life sucks. And now he's coming to tell them, oh, we're going to take you to a land milk and honey. Um, yeah, sure. What's your name again? Moses. Yes. Uh, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Okay. Then you and the elders are going to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord of the God of Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. See, it gets even better for Moses. You're going to go, and these people that don't listen to you are going to listen to you. They're going to believe you. You're going to then go to Pharaoh, uh, and you're going to say, hey, can we go for a three-day worship retreat? And, and what does God say? But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So that sounds promising. So I'll stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. And it continues on to the end. And it says, and you will plunder the Egyptians. And so you're saying, well, what's the excuse? Well, let's read verse 1 of chapter 4. Moses answered, what if they don't believe me? <laughs> what if I don't believe you? But what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? 
Hey, and here's the excuse. Moses is putting all these plans into his head, beginning with the burning bush is where the context of he's hearing all this. It's going, yeah, so I'm going to do that and this, and this is going to happen. That's not going to happen, but then this is going to happen. Yeah, we're going to leave and we're going to plunge. Yeah, I've thought about this, Lord. It's not going to work. It doesn't compute. But you read the story, but God says it will work. But not the way that Moses was calculating things. Despite the fact that God said it would work, despite his promises, all Moses could see were, were the obstacles uh, instead of the opportunities, the problems instead of the potential. I think we use the same excuse at times too. Like, think of the promises that God gives those of us who are willing to be obedient and, and, and serve God in whatever way we're called. I won't leave you or forsake you. Ask and you will receive. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. I will supply all your needs if I didn't say that already. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. God calls us, we've got all these promises, and yet we set the promises aside. We go, yeah, God, you know, I don't think your plan will work. And so that's what Moses says to God. I don't think this is going to work. Like, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And so verses 2 through 9 of chapter 4 God gives a response. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you some signs. Some demonstrations that you can use to prove that what you're saying is true. That by the time I'm finished working through you and in you, everyone who listens to you is going to know that what you say is true. And so he gives Moses three signs. A staff that becomes a snake. And, and, and God says to Moses, this, this staff that you can turn into a stick, a snake, and then pick it up and it turns back into a stick again. This is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. But if they still don't believe you, then here's another sign. Take your hand and stick it in your cloak. Now pull your hand out. And Moses did, and it was covered with leprosy. And then God says, put it back in your cloak and pull it out again. And his hand was totally fine. And he said, if they still don't believe, then take a picture and go to the Nile and get a picture of water and pour it out and it will become blood. And God said, those three signs, by the time you have done those things, they will believe that what you are saying is true. And do you know that God has given us the same promise? And you're going, well, I can go out and get a stick off the lawn out here and it's not going to turn into a snake. And we're not going to be doing the trick with our hands. And we go to the river by the zoo and we get some water and pour it out. It's probably just still going to be dirty water. But God has given us different signs. God has given us the sign of an empty tomb. God has given us the sign of a completed scripture. God has given us the sign of countless testimonies of lives changed. 
And just like he gave Moses a promise, he gives us a promise. He promises that there is coming a day when every knee, those who've accepted Christ as Savior, even those who haven't accepted Christ as Savior, every knee is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is Savior and Lord. And we also have the other promise that there is coming a day when every promise will be fulfilled. That victory will not only have been the victory secured on the cross, but ultimate victory will be made complete. And that's the day that we look forward to. And so we may say, God, I'm trying to figure out your plan. It doesn't look like it's going to work. And God is saying to us, but look at the promises. Look at the signs. Look at the hope that you, as a follower of Jesus, have. My plans will work. My plans will succeed. I can see things that you'll never see. And it's happening exactly as I have planned. But Moses still isn't sold. And so we come into another excuse. And if you go down to verse 10 in chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And what's the excuse? It's another popular one. What you're asking me to do, God, it's not my area of giftedness. Sound familiar? It seems that Moses hides behind his perceived uh, inability when it comes to speaking. And some feel maybe he had some kind of a speech impediment. Uh, Maybe his Egyptian and, and Hebrew weren't up to par. Maybe he didn't want the limelight. We're not really sure. I can think of reasons why some of us don't want to go out of our comfort zone. And we say, God, that's, that's not in my wheelhouse. That's not how you wired me. I don't have that gift or ability. And God's response is so encouraging to Moses and to us. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. See, God's not going to call us to do something that he's not going to equip us to do. That's just not who he is. And so when God is calling you and you question whether you've got that ability or if you've got that qualification or whether you've got that giftedness, God will equip you if he's truly calling you. And that I find very encouraging. And, and, and I would assume Moses found that encouraging. And, and, I, and I wish this part of Moses' story ended here, but it doesn't. And there's one last little portion of scripture that I want you to turn to. And it begins at verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, 
please send someone else. Moses has gone through all these excuses. I'm not the right person. I don't have the proper knowledge. I'm not sure your plan is going to work. It's out of my comfort zone. That's not my area of giftedness. And God has answered. Boom, 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 boom. And Moses says, here I am. Send Aaron. And we can spend all sorts of time on this, these few verses. There's so many lessons in it. I think teamwork. Because God relents and says, okay, Aaron's going to work with you. And then Moses ends up going and, and, and they deliver the, the Israelites from Egypt. But there's one lesson in it that I think is a little bit harsh. I think there are a lot of people who profess to be followers of Jesus who are living unfulfilled, miserable Christian lives because they refuse to be obedient to God's call to be involved in service. God has given each one of us a call if we're a follower of Jesus to be involved in promoting his kingdom. And yet a lot, as Brian, I said a couple of weeks ago, just warm pews and, and don't get involved. In it. And I just think that's got to be miserable. Unfulfilled Christian existence. Here I am. Thank you for saving me. But send somebody else. Our time is gone. I think of the story of Moses, and if it was up to me, if I was God, and, and you should be very thankful that I am not, but if I was God, and I was choosing someone to free the Israelites from Egypt, probably the last person I would have picked was an 80-year-old shepherd looking after sheep who was a fugitive wanted for murder. And yet Moses was the exact perfect person that he had chosen for the task. And thousands of years later, as God looks down upon Peterborough and the mess that Peterborough is in and the desperate need of salvation for so many people, if I was him and I was thinking who I would use to promote my kingdom and to change people's lives through and to impact this world and turn it upside down. I'd be looking for super saints, undercover angels, gifted preachers. And yet God looks down on Peterborough and he chooses you guys and me to partner with him to build his kingdom. And his challenge to us this morning is go. Go into Peterborough and make disciples. And your choice and my choice is we can keep making excuses. Or we can say, here I am, Lord. As ordinary, as, as much baggage as I brought with me from my past, as seemingly unqualified from the world's standards as I might be, here I am, Use me so that you can increase your kingdom for the sake of your son. Daniel.